You're listening to Always Player One, a solo board gaming podcast. Hello and welcome to Always Player One. I'm Scruffy. And I'm Norm. And today we're talking about Mage Knight. Again. <laughs> yes, we've um, covered Mage Knight before in episode three, but we've got a lot more to unpack today. Today we're specifically looking at the randomness in Mage Knight. And here to help us with this, back again, it's Kendall McKenzie. Kendall, welcome to the show. Hello, it's nice to be here. As per, as per usual. Yeah, always like coming on the show. If this is an unfamiliar voice to you, if you're a first time Always Player One listener and you're thinking, who's Kendall McKenzie? Well, they've been on the show four times. So briefly, Kendall, who are you? Hello. Um, I make various things and I made a print and play game that was the first print and play game that you featured on the show. It was episode five. It's called Rollway Station. That's free. Uh, there's a sequel coming out soon. So look forward to that. Uh, it's a roll and write train game. I hosted the Christmas quiz. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, just sort of generally hang around. I moderate the Discord as well. Not that we really need to do much moderation on there. But yeah, um, you've probably spoken to me if you're on the Discord. Yeah, Kendall is amazing and insightful and uh, we'll be bringing a lot of intellect and smartness to our episode today as always. Isn't that right, Kendall? Well, I mean... As, as much as I can muster. <laughs> Perfect. If you haven't checked out the episodes of Kendall in, then I'm sure after this episode, you'll be eagerly looking them up. So without any further ado, then let's move on to talk about uh, Mage Knight a little bit, shall we, guys? Yeah. yeah Sounds sure. agreeable, Scruffy. <laughs> awesome. So just for anyone who doesn't know what Mage Knight is, we do have a really in-depth description uh, of how the game plays in our episode three. So feel free to go and check that out. We'll just give a kind of real quick synopsis of what Mage Knight is and how it plays right now, though. So in Mage Knight, you play a titular Mage Knight. You pick a scenario to play, and there are various different scenarios that will see you traveling across the map, taking on fortified creatures and unfortified creatures slaying dragons to gain fame in and achieve the scenario's specific goal. The game is centers around a deck of cards. It's a deck builder game, and that represents your character's abilities. They also have a few skills and collect other different powerful tools to assist them in slaying the enemies and achieving their goals. Yeah, essentially Mage Knight is, as you say, Scruffy, a deck builder game. Um, as you level up, gain fame and, you know, move across the uh, the map and explore the, the board, you will uh, be adding more cards to your deck. You'll also be adding power to your tableau through various other cards and, and skills as you level up. But at its heart, Mage Knight is an adventure game. Mage Knight is a game of exploration and challenge. And Mage Knight is also a game with a... Very high skill ceiling. This is a game where you mm. can really improve on. But interestingly, Mage Knight has a very healthy dose of randomness, which is why we're looking to, to, to talk about that today. Because, you know, normally you think a game with a high skill cap, a game with a lot of planning involved, that that's probably a game low in randomness. But Mage Knight, Mage Knight flies in the face of that. It's full of randomness, and yet, and yet... 
its skill cap is is exceedingly high. So we want to look at the sophisticated use of randomness in this game and and really break down what sort of agency the players have over those decisions today. Absolutely. Uh, the main sort of decision space for you on your turn is in hand management, and we'll unpack that a bit as we go. But Norm is absolutely right there when he says that randomness plays a huge role in what you encounter and the options that open up to you during the game. Excellent. So so where, where do you want to begin, Scruffy? Because there's a lot to unpack with this one. Yeah, well, um, I'm just going to throw this out there straight away right at the start of the episode. This is the first time in a while for the Always Player One I've done a playthrough, and uh, that'll be up on my YouTube, hopefully in tandem with this episode. So you guys can check that out. So I would love to start by kind of talking about any recent games you guys have had and uh, how much fun you've been having Mage Knight, or even just games from from the past, and what it is that draws you to Mage Knight and back to Mage Knight to play again. And also, I think it would be nice to talk about the different ways we like to play the game as well. I'd love Kendall to start with this one, because mm. we've spoken about Mage Knight before, and we've kind of said about why we love it in episode three. So, Kendall, why, why don't you take this one, if that's okay? Yeah, of, uh, of course. Um, I mean, for me, it scratches a very sort of planning-y, kind of buildy up y kind of itch. Uh, there's, it's, it's got this really satisfying arc to it as you kind of gain in power and you're iterating on your deck by adding cards and maybe occasionally removing one or whatever. And as you move across the map, you do get this kind of build-up. And uh, honestly, part of it's the aesthetics as well. Part of this the aesthetics. You get the... Uh, the the hex map building up as you go, which I find really really satisfying. I actually often find myself yearning to play Age of Wonders, which is a totally different really kind of game, but it has the same sort of grand strategy feel and a, a similar aesthetic with the map. Uh, all hexagons in in Age of Wonders, all hexagons in uh, in Mage Knight hexagons are just the best it's very pleasing isn't it it is very pleasing it's got a lot of knobs and dials to twiddle and i mentioned in episode 20 for clans of caledonia when uh, when i guest hosted there that one of my favorite things about that game is there's a lot of different knobs to twirl and uh, buttons to press and everything and just every time that you press a button you just get a really nice satisfying bit of fun out of it and uh, i get the same vibe from mage knight even even more so yeah, I mean, just taking a bit of a sidetrack from randomness for a moment, it does it does the kind of extrinsic reward thing we hinted on in the Clans of Caledonia episode really well, doesn't it? Where after every single battle, after every encounter, every decision you make, when you succeed at it, you get something. You take that mage tower, you get a spell. And then sometimes, oh, you get an extra little thing as well because you level up. And so you're always getting the fame, which is pushing towards leveling up, but sometimes you actually cross a threshold as well and level up and get an extra additional extraneous reward for your hard work. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it is hard work sometimes doing the car handling the card. I've heard uh, Mage Knight described as uh, it feels like I need to do my taxes just to move across the board. <laughs> but really, like when you, you do your taxes to move across the board and de defeat a keep, it really feels like you then get a letter from uh, from HMRC saying they owe, <laughs> they owe you money, which, you know, that's a great, yes. that's a great feeling. Uh, and I'm, I'll happily do my yeah. taxes for a for a payday every time. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good analogy. And 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 I think Scruffy, to to your point about getting sort of double rewards all the time, the times in which you are most unlikely to get double rewards are when you fight more ordering orcs because they give you 
the least amount of fame compared to all other enemies that you would face. And they're not on sites that give rewards for conquering them. So they are very unlikely to give you double rewards. So in the design, when you kill them, you get reputation as well as fame as well. So even those like cannon fodders to your mage knight, you're still rewarded twice for for making the effort to to go and kill them. So yeah, yeah absolutely. You, you you hit the nail on the head. You are you know, it's 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 a game full of reward and making you feel like, yeah smart like a smart cookie. It's very, yeah, it's very um, satisfying when whenever you achieve any sort of goal in that game that you set yourself on the turn, or even if you can't quite do what you want, just having those orcs to deal with are, are a nice sort of secondary route sometimes on on your turn. If you couldn't quite maybe take that keep on, maybe you can take a marauding orc a couple of tiles away instead. Yeah, I think that that is a real draw for the game uh, for sure. What about you, Norm? Yeah, and for myself, um, Mage Knight is my personal favourite solo board game of all time. It's my second favourite board game of all time, you know, solo or multiplayer. And it's a game that I've played close to 100 times i think somewhere in the 70s mark ish um if you think that's close to 100 um you know round it up round it up (laughs) closer to 100 than zero indeed indeed one is closer to 100 than zero you can't unplay a game (laughs) so if you've played it one time you're closer to having played it 100 times that's true there you go. Well, then, in that case, I've cl- played it close to a thousand times. And, <laughs> no, um, but but genuinely, I played the game, you know, seventy-ish times, somewhere in that region. I don't track my plays, but I but I did last year, and I played it in the. I think it was just over thirty, and that was quite a slow year for me with Mage Knight. So I think even my most reserved estimates would be somewhere in the 70s but it may even be higher and close close to 100 so i obviously love the game if you want to know exactly what my thoughts are i i really laid it all bare in episode three uh all the reasons why i love it but yeah what i'm really interested to talk about specifically today is the use of randomness in the game and i'm i'm absolutely itching i'm chomping at the bit to to get that unpacked so if it's okay with you scruffy i'd really like to uh i'd really like to start unpacking that if that's okay yeah absolutely i'm keen to i'm keen to hear your thoughts okay before we dive into the randomness i think we have to give a little bit of context as to um what different types of randomness are and what we're kind of looking at today and i don't i don't really know where to begin with that one but uh kennel you were doing a little bit of research into this and I i was i was wondering what what you could share in regards to input and output randomness so um yeah input randomness and output randomness is uh it's a term that you might be familiar with essentially the difference is in input randomness is when you are given a random event and then you make your decision after the random event so something like you roll some dice and then you pick which one you want to use or you draw a card a hand of cards and you pick which one you're going to play. That's input randomness. The idea being that there is randomness, you're not sure what you're going to get, but you don't have to make a decision until after you've seen it. And then there's output randomness, where you make your decision, and then you have a random event that kind of determines the effectiveness of that of that decision. So the classic example would be in something like Dungeons & Dragons, would be rolling to hit. You know, you say, I want to attack the orc with my axe, do I hit, roll the die, 
you've made the decision, then you see if it works. That's output randomness. Or for board gamers, maybe something like Risk. Yeah, something like Risk, something like um, any sort of combat game. A lot of combat games have it. Uh, They'll have rolling to hit, rolling for damage. Or it could be something like saying, I want to visit this area on the board, which is going to let me draw an event card. And whatever happens on the event, that's output randomness because you draw it, you don't know what you're going to draw when you make the decision uh, to to get the Mm -hmm. event. Even in quote-unquote modern Euro games, uh, if you still consider Settlers of Catan a, a modern game, you know, Settlers of Catan has out- output randomness in that you choose where to place your settlements and then you, every turn you roll to see what resources are successfully you know, produced. You don't know when you build your settlement there if it's going to produce. You might know the likelihood, but it's still output randomness which determines if that is a successful place to, to build. Yeah. And um, I, I, st- I, decided to do a bit of digging into sort of the history of, of input and output randomness as a term and uh, from what I can tell I didn't do a huge amount so um, please forgive me if this is wrong but uh, it seems to be coined by a designer called Keith Bergen who has made a few sort of um, mobile games he's made some some tabletop games and, and, and stuff and he has some very strong opinions on randomness uh, so when I read through some of his articles where he initially coins the terms i kind of started to think hmm is this actually as useful and unbiased as as it first appears because immediately it appears to be just a simple categorization right and and i think by and large that's how it's used in the hobby at the moment right the the sort of innocent categorization but uh i, I have a feeling you're about to blow our minds right now with with your findings I don't know if I'm going to blow any minds, but I I want to kind of contextualize the terms because um, Bergen really dislikes output randomness. He really, really hates it. If you go ahead and read the articles where he he sort of coins the terms and talks more about randomness, and we'll I'm sure Scruffy will put links in the description. Mm-hmm. He he really dislikes the output randomness, and he kind of thinks it shouldn't ever really be used in strategy games. And his reasoning kind of makes sense, right? It divorces the game state from the decisions leading up to it. So there's this fantastic example Mm -hmm. that I love from Little Wars, which is the very first war game. Uh, It was written by H.G. Wells. And he says in the rule book, rash is the man who trusts his life to the spin of a coin. One impossible paladin slew in succession nine men and turned defeat to victory to the extreme exasperation of the strategist who had led those victims to their doom. Hmm. And um, what Keith Bergen would argue is the lucky player who ended up winning that game described in, in the book didn't make any decisions to win. The actual outcome of the game is, is divorced from the, from the decisions that the players made moving up to that. Um, and I was I was interested to hear what you you guys think about that because I th- I feel like you're probably not quite so harsh on output randomness. That's so so interesting and what a wonderful quote to bring in as well. I think I came into solo gaming very much in a similar camp, and I think in multiplayer games, output randomness can be the death of the competition. In that, if you have too much of it in a game, or even just any of it, really any of it that's noticeable or has an impact, then you are shifting the reward emphasis away from the players their skill their choices and playing the game optimally and putting it into the realm of 
chance. And it's just like you say in that wonderful quote there, it, it, it doesn't make for necessarily a very fair strategic game it might work fine in games where strategy isn't the kind of focus of the game or where you're not testing the players on those skills a a party game for example fine doesn't matter so much but in terms of a, a highly competitive strategy game output randomness is often the death of the game i think in a solo game however well now <laughs> i've started to realize that since you are only ever really playing against the game output randomness can in effect become almost a substitute for another player and the unpredictability of another player and i'd love to get your guys takes on on that as a as a, as a concept but i'll give you kind of an example of when it when it kind of recently uh, I, I noticed it i mean I've, I, this has been in the back of my mind for a while now but in the mage night playthrough i was doing for this episode i had just reached a point where i was exploring and just got to the point where i was ready to see the the cities and I'd, i'm sure all of you mage night players and veterans out there will have had this moment where i explored got ready was geared up to go and drew a tile that had just a bunch of impassable or difficult to move through terrain right there right in front of me and that is purely output randomness the flip of the tile the exploration tile isn't something i can account for i make my decision then i flip the tile output randomness but the story that that creates and the kind of the pushback from the world there enriched the game for me and made it more fun. Didn't make it as fair as playing Mage Knight where you could see the tiles and what was coming, but it made the game more fun and interesting. And I think that is only something that I feel comfortable with in a solo game. In a multiplayer game of Mage Knight, and I'm sorry I'm rambling here, guys, but in a multiplayer game of of Mage Knight, I would feel a lot more annoyed if I got an impassable city and uh, my opponent who I'm playing against got a really easy route into their city just from the luck of the exploration but in a solo game it's a story and in a sense it's a kind of conflict between you and the game well yeah i think that's a really interesting point scruffy and i think yeah output randomness um accounting for the sort of reaction of what a player can do or something just opposing to you to give you mm-hmm. complications is, is absolutely fine in the solo game your, your example specifically of exploration is something that I want to come on to in a moment, obviously mm, when we break mm. down the individual moments of randomness later on, because even in exploration there is some form of, of, of mitigation and, and agency there for, for you as a player. If I can have a moment to sort of react to what Kendall said just then, that sort mm-hmm. of quote that you used there, Kendall. Yeah. My take on that would be, well, one, it's, it's, it's obviously a very extreme view. It's, it's it's kind of a view that doesn't take in any of the nuances with with output randomness. It's it it's saying that output randomness is a decision and then a random event. But here's the thing: it's not that case in every game. It's decision, random event, and then guess what? You've got another turn. So there is another decision following that, and that's where it becomes very interesting. I think you know in Mage Knight when you delve a dungeon and you get an enemy that was slightly harder than you may have wanted. That's bad output randomness. But now you have a chance to plan your attack. You have a chance to respond to that randomness. And I think that's I think that's where these these sort of terms get very interesting because if you if you categorize it in random event and then decision, that's input. 
decision and then random event that's output but what's what you find kind of interesting is they start bleeding into other turns you start making decisions based on your previous output randomness on the on the previous turn so mm. what is that it kind of it blurs the lines a little more and i think another thing i want to say is i think a lot of what keith bergen's saying there is um kind of because it sounds like they attribute a lot of value to the word strategy and i think that's something that we as a hobby do to a kind of almost fetish level um and sorry for bringing the the, the tone down but the idea that a game needs to be strategic in order to be fun or interesting or even a game of skill is absolutely absurd. It's it's absolutely absurd. And um, I would go as far as to say that I don't think Mage Knight has any strategy involved in the game oh. and still has a high skill ceiling. <laughs> There's so and many. There, there you go. I... There's so many paths to explore here. So, so many. We're going to have to put a pin in about 15 different things. There's a lot I want to take issue with there. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll let yeah. you uh, go ahead and uh, speak your, say your bit now, but there's a lot I want to circle back to there, Norm, because I think we're going to get our fighting gloves on here. <laughs> I'm happy to... I'm sure the truth is somewhere in the middle, but also not because I'm right, but carry mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I want to pick up on what you said, actually, about the fuzz. Is I, I initially, when I first heard about input and output randomness, I kind of thought, yeah, that scans, that... That seems to catch be a catch-all. But actually, in kind of diving into this a bit more, I think there's a lot more fuzz. I don't think it's as clear-cut as it's often made out to be. And you, you touched on that just there, Norm. But I was thinking of more singular examples, right? Because you can argue that any kind of output randomness is just input randomness for the next turn. But I wasn't, I wasn't hugely satisfied with that as an argument until I thought about getting an artifact in Mage Knight. Now, when you get an artifact in Mage Knight, you draw multiple cards and you pick which one you want. But you can't see the cards when you initially make the decision to attack the site that's going to give you an artifact. So is that input randomness or output randomness? Because you make a decision you're going to attack the enemy that's going to give you an artifact. You then get the random event, and then you make another decision. So the gaining of the artifact sandwiches the random event. It's neither input nor output. It's a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, you you know that artifacts are the most powerful cards in the game, though. So whatever artifact you get is superior to any of the advanced actions or spells you could get. So in, in that sense, it well, is... Well, potentially. Well, I mean, in, entirely. They, they're, they are more... Pa- the balance of the cards is more powerful. Well, that may be the case, Scruffy, but the, the thing is, the artifacts are situational. They're only good in the situation. How many times have you had a, the most powerful card in your deck that you've actually had to use sideways? Because in your current situation, it's not it's not working. So it's perfectly... You know, you can say it's a safe decision, but... I've had it happen many times where I've drawn two artifacts and gone, ah, I'd like to draw again, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. But that's true of all the cards. And so they're situational in the same way that all the cards are. They're just more powerful iterations of the other cards. So what Kendall's asking is, is it input or output randomness? I would argue that it, it's definitely got a bit of output randomness there in that you're not sure what you're going to get specifically, but in, it is entirely input round that you know you are getting a good card, a very good card. Yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah, part I of... I would disagree. 
I think that's part of the design um, of a lot of the artifact cards. Does it does kind of mitigate that uh, risk of not getting something good because they are so powerful. Mm. It, it mitigates that yeah. risk. But I'm not looking at it as a specific example in the sense of does it work in the game. I'm trying to look at it as an example of interrogating the input-output model, I suppose. And mm. I think it's an example that doesn't exactly fit in that input-output model uh, perfectly. And it makes me wonder, is the input-output model, you know, the perfect model? Yeah, is, is it a binary? Yeah, yeah but the, the thing is, when you said it to me, Kendall, I, my immediate thought was exactly different to Scruffy's, was that it's, it's output. You make a decision to get an artifact, and then you have a random event you then make another decision, but it's not a gameplay decision. It's it's just, I pick a card. I, it is an in-game decision, but it's not through gameplay. Whereas you earn the artifact, you earn the random event through making a move in the game. And I think that's for me, you, you made the decision. I don't know. I, maybe this is another layer of definition we need to put on top of input <laughs> output in the output yeah i think i think that's what kendall's i think that's what kendall's getting at isn't it that there's it needs to be a caveat doesn't there for those choices that you make that lead to some sort of mysterious um, potential outcome that's kind of it's the same with the skills in mage knight when you level up you're not sure if you're going to get a skill that's... yeah getting a skill would be um would be kind of exactly the same. It would be a hybrid. It would be of input-output in, in exactly the same way. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with input-output as a system, but I think it's just good to kind of keep in mind it seems to have been coined by a person who has a very specific idea of what's good and what's not. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people who are going to use these terms don't necessarily agree with... Bergen's opinions on yeah. on what they are, and maybe there's room for for something else. And I want to like hold my hands up here and say I'm not trying to trash Keith Bergen at all. Um, I disagree with him on a lot of game design stuff, but I actually find reading his stuff to be really really interesting because it really makes you interrogate why you think what you think. He's very good at arguing his points and countering arguments. Uh, so it has it forces you to uh, come up with more interesting and more robust kind of arguments for why you disagree. Nice. Uh, so I, I would recommend checking out the articles. Links in the description. Yeah, I think regarding the input-output fuzziness, you mentioned there that there could be an argument made for all output randomness is input randomness from the previous turn. And that is a weak argument. And I agree with you, Kendall, it is a weak argument. But one of my favorite uh, counter-arguments to that was... Um, by Gilhover from the Ludology podcast and from, you know, designer of the networks and High Rise and all the other wonderful games, Wordsy. Wordsy. And... <laughs> <laughs> one of my favourite word games. And uh, one of my favourite, yeah, one of my favourite counter-arguments to that was from Gilhover. He used an analogy of, of drumming. They said, you know, if, if a drummer is drumming snare, hi-hat, snare, hi-hat, and another drummer was drumming hi-hat, snare, hi-hat, snare, off, you know, one on beat and one off beat. If mm. you zoom out, they're playing the same music. If you zoom out, they're doing the same thing, but it will sound different. And yeah, that's just one of my favorite analogies because yes, if you zoom out, it goes randomness, decision, randomness, decision, or decision, randomness, decision, randomness. If you look back far enough from a high enough vantage point, that will look very similar. Mm. But when mm. you're there listening to it or playing it, 
you you will understand the difference in feeling. That's I'm really glad you I'm really glad you bring up that analogy because that that's exactly the sort of issue I had with uh, with the thing you were saying about well one of the issues but with the thing you were saying about specifically uh, output randomness maybe being input randomness for the next turn is the macro then you know it it is the that the player didn't have the initial they weren't the the unmovable mover in the situation and what I mean mm. by that is the first instigator of the action something random was the unmovable mover and then the player had to react to that so it puts people at an unequal footing it would be like in a game of monopoly starting with a random amount of money each (laughs) yeah it it affects your decisions now you can't buy this one so you have to only buy this one you could say well now you have a new decision space to work in but it's not a fair one so i guess that's where that's where the kind of negative energy towards output randomness comes in especially within strategy games is it's about fairness is uh well you could say the same about input you know you could say because in in that example scruffy that's actually input randomness so you know it's it's although although output will often feel less fair the you know it goes both ways you you it depends it entirely depends on how the designer has implemented the randomness and i think i think that's the thing you can't say one's good and one's not good it's um it's more nuanced than that. It's more how it's implemented and where it sits with you as a player, I feel. That's a really good point, Norm. Thanks. <laughs> output output randomness does often feel less fair, um, I think. is is It feels less fair, even if, it, if, if it's not. Because in, in input randomness, it's like, well, you had no control. You just have to do the best with, with what you've been given. Whereas output randomness, it can often feel like you decide to do something and then the game tells you no you can't do that so i I get what you were saying about the about about the fairness yeah yeah for sure for sure i think i i think i fall into the trap of like a lot of people and like keith bergen of seeing output randomness as inherently more unfair because when you're playing the game and in the moment it feels unfair in, in, for example, if you were in Monopoly and you had to roll to see if you were able to buy a property, that would feel quite unpleasant. But there are really lovely forms of output runners. We've already hinted to some kind of nice moments where it doesn't feel as unfair. Uh, it actually reminds me of a game design theory I was hearing about recently where output randomness often only really works well and is fun when the when the result of the randomness is a benefit rather than a punishment so in in game design if you if you make some a random event give you a power up and then that power up be a good power up or just an all right power up it doesn't feel like as as bad yeah i mean that's that's like loss aversion 101 isn't mm-hmm. it it feels yeah. it feels proportionally worse to lose something than it does to gain something so yeah, yeah absolutely that goes that bleeds into every form of game design and just like just just like with input and output randomness loss aversion is is just another tool in designers back pockets for them to manipulate your feelings throughout the game and try to uh I don't know, coax you into taking certain actions, uh, which I think is is interesting. I don't know what you think about that one, Kendall. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I I generally agree. Uh, and there was there was just one more thing I kind of wanted to bring up about the um the the input output kind of discussion that came up in my research, and it was a really lovely quote that someone wrote in the comments to one of Bergen's articles. Uh, but before I can kind of go into why I like that. 
I need to talk about the three pockets of Tovax trousers. Okay. <laughs> so this is my theory of the three things you need to put in your pocket in Mage Knight. What the game is kind of actually about at its core. And at its core, I boil it down and you may disagree on this. I think ultimately, all you need, all Mage Knight is about when you're playing the full conquest or solo conquest scenario is three things. It's about building up to being able to kill enemies, being able to avoid wounds and move relatively fast so that you can do that final city assault. And that kind of seems really reductive, right? There is more to the game than that. But ultimately, the first five turns of the game, often five rounds, are just building up to that final city assault. And the first five rounds, you are planning and adding to your deck so that when you make that final assault, you will be able to kill the enemies, avoid the wounds, and move to get there before the game's over. You, are you kind of on board with that? I mean, do you agree with that? Or I mean, Kendall, I'm, I'm glad you said it, because it's actually one of the things I was going to bring up to sort of back up my clickbaity kind of opinion that I said at the beginning, that Mage Knight is a zero strategy game, is that... <laughs> well, again, I think... I, I genuinely think the only reason you guys would disagree is because of the amount of value attributed to the word strategy. But... Yeah, the, the one one of the things that I was going to bring up, Kendall, is exactly that. Like, what is a good strategy for Mage Knight? Well, it is be strong enough to kill things and take on the cities. It is to avoid wounds. And it is also to make it to the cities in time to do it. And that is no more of a strategy than what somebody who's just read the rule book and never played the game would be able to tell you. Like, if you just read the rule book, you go, wounds are bad. I need to do this in this many rounds, and I level up by killing things. Like, you don't even need to play the game to know that. That's not high-level strategy. You can't plan the points in between that. Three pockets that you were describing there, Kendall, you can't Mm. really go, and the way you kill things is only attack keeps. Like, that doesn't work. And it's because of the the way the randomness works, which I want to unpack in a minute. But before I do, I, I want to allow you a chance to reply to that. Yeah, well, if you if you if we put the strategy to one side for a moment, um, because that's I I like that you agree with me on the three pockets. The point I was making about the output randomness being related to that is there was a fantastic quote in the comments on a on a Keith Bergen article uh, where a, a person called Ben Sly said, for instance, not knowing beforehand if a game-winning attack will hit will cause a skilled player to have a much deeper gameplay experience at the end of an otherwise solved game, as they'll have to prepare a contingency plan in case it misses. Now, the equivalent for that in Mage Knight would be not knowing if the amount of attack cards you have is enough to kill everything in the city because you don't know exactly what's in the city. And it's about not knowing if the amount of block cards and skills you have will be enough. And I just, I thought about that and I thought, yeah, that's, that's actually a really, really fantastic point. Cause if you could see the city, if it was purely input randomness, you, you draw the city randomly at the start of the game, but you know what it's going to be right from the beginning. You know, you've got 
the monsters uh, in that particular composition. You don't really need to play the last turn because you can just go, yeah, well, I've got enough attack to, to kill all of them. I've got enough block to defend all of them. I've got enough move to get there in time. Yeah, I, I could probably win. And then hmm. you rob yourself of that exciting conclusion. Um, and I thought that was a really good, really good point. And I just wanted to bring that up at the end of the discussion of the output randomness before we moved on to the strategy. Yeah, I really like that. That's really interesting. Like, I think that really strikes to the heart of how output randomness can. And I suppose it's making me even question whether it can have a place in multiplayer games as well. And even in deeply strategic games where as long as it's handled right and so long as it's fair, I think that's where that's where you can kind of play around and have fun. I mean, even something like it made me realize that something like in Mage Knight, drawing your hand at the end and getting the composition of cards that you hoped that you'd get to take on the city or that you'd been working towards getting is entirely output randomness. And that's it's kind of so baked into that. And it's some things that we just take kind of for granted in so many games that we still see as deeply strategic games that there are so many different ways to kind of feed us this output randomness in a way that still feels and perhaps even is fair that, yeah, it's, it, it can it can have a, a, a strong place in a game and a place to make a game fun and exciting and a real story experience, I think. And I, th- I think it also comes down to, and, and you, Scruffy, you've used the word strategic like so many times that we're definitely moving on to this after I finish this point. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> before we do, yeah, like if I could uh, allow a final word on that, Kendall, because I think that's mm. lovely. And I think it hits it hits the heart of, you know, gaming isn't just, it isn't just about how clever you are at planning it's also about exciting moments and being mm. able to tell stories from your table and the the output randomness moments in something like twilight imperium for example those moments are the moments people tell stories about for months and months after playing the stand-up die roll moment isn't it yeah exactly it's the everyone's off their table even if you're not involved in that in that moment everybody stands up as your one last defender on the planet just somehow holds out and ends up winning or doesn't and gets crushed in a really valiant effort and you think wow what a story that told your paladin takes on the nine men yes, exactly yes and it's you could say oh, it's the death of strategy or or, or or whatever melodramatic language you want to use but but the truth is it's exciting and that's that's yeah, that's just a fact. It's exciting. It tells the story and it's good. Mm. Really, really agree with you. And in a solo game especially, I think potentially if I were playing Mage Knight multiplayer, that wouldn't matter so much to me uh, when I when I do play multiplayer. But yeah, solo, 100%. The nice arc, the nice story really makes the game satisfying. But we're all seeing here, apart from, with the exception of myself, who's, who's being um, antagonistic, and I apologise for that. <laughs> But we've been talking about even in a strategic game, it could be interesting, as if that is something, some lofty goal to to reach, being a strategy game. So I think we should kind of unpack our own definitions of strategy and and and, and maybe see where you sit with that. I've I've made my opinion quite clear that I don't think Page Knight is a strategy game, and and I'll, and I'll come on to why in a moment. But one of the reasons why it's important to to to, to unpack is because one of the criticisms that is often thrown at Mage Knight is it has too much luck to be a strategy game. 
So I think in order to address that, we need to actually think about what strategy is and uh, uh, and if it is is even a strategy game in the first place. So uh, definitions of strategy then, I guess. Uh, for me, strategy is just about the long-term planning that you undertake as a player in order to either solve a game as a solo player or defeat the game or defeat your opponent. It's all about your sort of schemes, your plans to achieve your ultimate objective, right? So when you play a game, you make moves, you you make decisions on a turn, and you always have in your mind an ultimate objective and goal and plan you're working towards. Your plan might shift and change, your strategy might adapt and develop, and that's fine, but there can be a strategy in a game makes it a strategy game, I think. I see. I think for me, it is more specific than that. Uh, I think a lot of what you said there, it kind of applies to strategy, but most a lot more of it applies to uh, tactics, right? So the the whether whether it's useful to have this kind of binary in place is something I know Kendall has really strong opinions on, which is one of the reasons <laughs> we actually wanted them on the show in the first place. But there are, there is, there is a, a you know, a difference. And um, one thing you said there, Scruffy, is your, your strategy can change. And uh, well, if your strategy is changing from turn to turn based on whatever, whether it's player uncertainty or whether it's in case of Mage Knight randomness, that, that demonstrates to me a much more tactical game in that it's it's developing short-term plans to an overall objective. I do think there is a crossover. I think you can have an overall strategy to be strong enough to defeat the cities. Mm-hmm. But that's not a, a high-level strategy. And that's what I mean when I say Mage Knight isn't really a high... It's not really a game of high strategy because the way in which you get strong enough is by reacting constantly to the feedback the game's giving yeah i, I think you're, you're right that, that is a, a very much a semantic difference we've got there between tactics and strategy i see something like a game of rock paper scissor for example even as having a strategy you choose your weapon your your action based on your strategy i think they're going to pick rock so i'm going to pick paper right that's a kind of strategy in my mind and so that would be a fairly simple strategy can you give me an example of what would be a high level strategy game unlike mage knight then because i can't think of anything that's a high level strategy game if mage knight isn't sure 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 so again i think i think the issue that people take with this is because i think and as i mentioned earlier we as a hobby attribute a lot of a lot of value to the word strategy. We think of it as um, strategy is you overcoming obstacles to carry out an overall plan. So all games with value should be a strategy game. Um, we value the word so much that I think Paul Grogan, who designed the Krang expansion and the Shades of Tesla expansion for Mage Knight, well, co-designed those, those expansions, went ahead and uh, on, on a recent podcast and said that when people used to ask what kind of games he plays. You know, the first question is, what like Monopoly? I'm sure we've all had that reaction. And what you would normally say to that was, no, games with more strategy. I mean, that's how much value we attribute to this word. This word. We, we almost define our whole hobby as we are strategists. But to answer your question, Scruffy, when I say high-level strategy, immediately I think because the amount of value we attribute to that word, you think this must be a really hard game. But I don't think that is the case. When I say high-level strategy, I mean a game where you can come in with a specific, not just end goal, but a strategy for how you're going to get there. That is my mind as a strategy. So, for example, Caverna. In Caverna, 
I can have a strategy of I will get the uh, my my goal is to get the most points, and my strategy is I will get a stone engine, a wood engine, a food engine, my worker engine, and then my scoring engine. And by doing those five clear steps, and I can go in even more detail because I can tell you which rooms that I could take to do that. And in fact, if given enough time, I could probably map that out without playing the game, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's an example. I've, if, it, if it was on a spectrum and strategy was on the right and tactical was on the left, I think Mage Knight wouldn't be way, way, way on the left, but it would be leftward tilting and Caverna would be way on the right. Now, I think because we think of strategy as this this very important thing, when I say Gavana is a high-level strategy game, I can probably tell listeners have got their backs up immediately, especially if they don't like Gavana. Like, oh, Mage Knight is way better than Gavana. How can you not say it's a strategy game? But when I, I recently went back and watched some of your playthroughs on YouTube, Scruffy, I watched your uh, Mage Knight playthrough, and I went back and watched your Feast of Odin playthrough. A Feast of Odin is another game where I would consider having a lot of strategy. And you can tell the difference in the language you're using in both playthroughs. When you played A Feast of Odin, you were saying things like, I don't want to do the animals. I did the animals last time. Meaning, I know I can go the whole game without taking animals. I can employ a high-level strategy where at the beginning of the game, I can tell you I'm never going to do that action. Whereas when you were playing Mage Knight, you were like, well, normally I would take this skill, but you know, given what's happened, I'm going to take this skill instead. Normally I would take this spell, but because I'm next to this Mage Tower, I'll take uh, Mana Bolt, and that means that next turn I'll be able to do this. You didn't have long-term plans. You had one or two plans ahead. You had very tactical level way of thinking about it. I'm going to explore here. Oh, that's really hard. That means I need to go back and take on this Ancient Ruin because otherwise I'm not going to do anything this round. I mean, you can tell it's a tactical game because at the start of every round, you don't choose a strategy. You choose. <laughs> I'm being silly there, but that's kind of what I mean. I don't know. Does anyone else want to jump in on this? What do you Are think? you ready for my hot take? Yes, please. Sure. Just quickly want to throw out before before we get before we get the the mic drop from Kendall here. Just uh, uh, I don't know if uh, I haven't rewatched my old YouTube video, but this latest one I did notice a, a lot more what you might call strategic decisions. Maybe it came with comes with experience from playing the game a bit more, but perhaps uh, perhaps my my latest video would put pay to some of that. Carry on, Kendall. <laughs> Are you ready for my hot take? About as ready as I'll ever oh, yeah. be. Hell yeah. I mean, I'm not going to blow your minds or anything, I think, but um, or destroy your arguments with facts and reason. I don't think that distinguishing between tactics and strategy in games is a particularly useful endeavour. I don't think it's a useful dichotomy to have. I think it's extremely rigid, and the way that it's treated is kind of almost mutually exclusive. I don't think that it's useful to categorise things as tactical versus strategic in gaming so i can kind of understand it in something where there's multiple levels uh, such as in an actual war where your strategy is kind of you're moving the abstract wooden blocks around the picture of the country and the the tactics are what your men are actually doing in battle but in a, in a game i don't think there's ever really that huge amount of separation and I think what gets labelled as tactical in Mage Knight is more of a kind of opportunistic style of strategy, an opportunistic style of, of decision-making than it is 
a pre-planned style and i think that is in part a reaction to the amount of random input that you get for you mentioned caverna obviously norm as a, as a more strategic game that when you play it solo is a game with zero randomness it is entirely deterministic um so it is almost a puzzle more than it is uh, anything and there's not much room for that opportunistic play but the opportunistic nature i think is is different from not having a long-term plan it's you don't go in with a predefined idea of what to do you go in with with vague kind of notions and one forms over time so I think a, a good example of some other similar games would be something like Slay the Spire or even if you look at something like Railway Station. I would consider those to be games with opportunistic play where every time you're offered an option, you think, will this help me win the game? Right. That's ultimately what you're doing when you make a decision. You're saying, am I going to win the game because I do this? Will this increase or decrease the chances of me winning? And at the start of the game, those probabilities are going to be roughly 50-50, right? There's going to be a slant. So for a character like Norowas, making a decision that gives you more influence and lets you pick more units, he's already good with units and influence. So there's going to be some weight there. But roughly everything has an even chance of kind of helping you win the game. But as your deck grows and as your tableau grows, the first few decisions you make opportunistically guide you over time because they change those percentage chances of will this help you win the game? Because cards play off each other, units play off each other, skills will stack with each other. So I think you're right to say that early on, you don't really go in with a plan of I'm going to go for all the keeps this game because you might not know that there are going to even be any keeps. But you get to a point, and I think you start to see the point quite early in a game of Mage Knight, where you go, right, I've got the Savage Monks because they were cheap and available and I wanted a unit. I had the influence to get them at this point. However, what that now means is I have access to a fairly accessible siege attack so what i'm going to be doing is i'm going to be focusing on fortified sites and i know you say yes you can't plan for to take all the keeps and all of the uh spell mage towers and so on but there are typically in a game you play with what seven of 14 countryside tiles so half of the tiles and of the tiles that have a keep or a mage tower you're guaranteed almost to get three or four. I haven't done the exact maths, but you'll get around three or four, which can guide you. And a lot of places that have a keep will also have a monster den on them, for example. So you you have the choice there of which to focus on. And that, that focus is going to be dictated by your kind of long-term organic strategy, I suppose, without wanting to use the word. And I, and I think that happens even not just throughout the whole game, but even to a lesser extent through the rounds on a micro level mm. because mm. you start with your deck of cards and the, the, gradually the, the randomness becomes more predictable. For example, your deck becomes smaller. You have a better idea of what's coming next. So you're able to plan more turns ahead. 
the mana becomes depleted the more you roll it. So your choices become less. You have a much clearer idea of what you're going to need to do on each turn. And do do I think it's a useful distinction? I, uh, I it's a difficult one. I see your point. I think it's a point really, really well made, Kendall. But I. I think that it's still, it is a good, I do think it's a good distinction to have because I think specifically with games like Mage Knight where your so many of your decisions are going to be reactionary, so many of your decisions are going to be opportunistic as you described it or tactical as I, as I put it. Calling Mage Knight a strategy game, the fact is the distinction does exist and people do use it. and. I've seen it. I've seen it in the wild. I've seen it on Facebook groups. People saying Mage Knight has too much luck to be considered a strategy game. And I and I think to myself, ain't nobody said it's a strategy game. <laughs> you know? I think that's entirely the heart of it. That it seems like for you, tactics and strategy are entirely intrinsically tied up with output and input randomness. The example you gave of Caverna is a game that has no randomness, and so obviously no output randomness. So I think all the all the moments of output randomness in Mage Knight are what force you to see it as a tactical game rather than a strategic game, because it's at those moments that you start forming a strategy or developing a new strategy. The fact that you can't see what tiles are coming up, what units are coming up, whatever, and that you have to react to the locations as they appear, the output randomness is what, in your mind, I suppose, makes it a tactical rather than strategic game. And that that is entirely tied up in what the commenters you've seen are saying, it's too lucky to be a strategy game. Right? So so I guess the the distinction there is an important one because it's clearly on people's mind and i think it is entirely linked to the discussion topic of this episode output randomness is inherently not strategic seems to be the message a lot of people feel and think i personally entirely don't agree with that and i think the opportunistic or tactical whatever word you want to use opportunistically formed strategy is still strategy in a very very similar vein to any other strategy it's just more fluid more developing and i i i personally think it's it's a it's a weird i'm with you kendall it's a weird thing to sort of say well that's not strategy i think it's just another form of strategy and it's very rare that you'll see games like caverna that that don't that completely remove randomness as an element. And so in, in that case, it's, it's very rare that you'll find a game that is a strategy game if you if you say that any form of output land, randomness or luck or whatever you want to call it disqualifies something from being a strategy game. Well, I don't... I a lot, See, again, a lot of your language there of you're disqualifying it from being a strategy game. It's, I'm, not, I'm not... Well, I mean, you've said... Mage Knight is not a strategy game. That's... But, you, but you're making it sound like I'm demoting it by I'm saying not, I'm that. Not, I'm, no, not at all. But the, the words we use to describe a game are important. And it's exactly what other people are saying. I mean, they're saying it in a kind of negative way. Mage Knight isn't a strategy game. It's too lucky. It's a bad game. You're saying, sure, it's a, it's a game that's not a strategy game. I agree. I still think it's a great game. I don't think I'm talking in terms of value here. I am just talking in terms of what is being tested for the player and what is being asked of the player and the way the player is being invited to interact with the game. It is still a strategic game in that sense, even with the output randomness baked in. 
Yeah, and um, it, 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 a lot interestingly, uh, Scruffy, it's a lot of the input randomness that I think makes it reactionary and tactical. For example, if we start diving into some of the specific random events now, mm. I was considering the setup. So if you have any experience with Mage Knight, you, you probably know that you shouldn't start planning your m- mode of attack or your mode of you know, trying to win the game before you see the setup. Can we can we agree on that much at least? <laughs> um, some uh, sorry, uh, no, I can't. Uh, I, with Wolfhawk, for example, I played with, uh, and and it, again, it's open to change. But I start the game as Wolfhawk. I know she is good at ranged attack, so my strategy is going to be to try and develop a ranged attack deck to try and develop ranged attack units. Uh, that's an example, but yeah, for, for sure. So that's something that happens. I guess you could say it's after setup, but uh, you you choose your mage knight sometimes. So sure, okay, n- n- neither randomness, right? No, it's, uh... no, no, no problem, Scruffy. Let, let's 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 run with that then. Hmm. So then you choose your strategy, and now you hit with seven areas of randomness. The unit offer develops, the spell offer develops, the advanced action offer develops, your hand is then drawn, your exploration tiles are drawn, and your enemy tokens are drawn, and your mana pool is rolled. Mm -hmm. And it's not at all clear that, in fact, a ranged attack would be something you couldn't even dream of developing with with what you've with what you've seen yeah so yes yes you can have a strategy going in but my point is is you you've got you've got wolfhawk there and you, you're ready to go and then tovic tovac kicks your door down grabs your strategy by the lapels throws it out the window and goes no you need enemies with physical resistance because that's <laughs> the unit offer and you go oh yeah that would be better because if i take that unit with physical resistance i can then go to that keep and they can take that hit and when and then i get to draw an extra card and 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 so maybe you adopt a new strategy yeah, but that's exactly what I mean by it's not. There are strategies in, like I said in my in my point, it isn't a binary. It, mm. If Mage Knight wouldn't be all the way to the left uh, on on the tacticals and made up tactical and 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 strategic spectrum, but it'd be leftward facing because yes, you can develop strategies and like Kendall said, you can you can get an idea of yes, I've with the cards that I've pulled, I I'm starting to develop a somewhat strategy, but you know that you have to often change and adapt it and tactically make reactionary decisions. And, and on top of that, the, the type of strategy that you guys are describing isn't particularly, like I said, isn't particularly, not, not high level, that's, that's the wrong term, but it's not, it's not very long term. You know, you can't really go more than a few, a few turns ahead, I guess is, is, is what I'm trying to say. So I'm not disagreeing. I'm not saying, I guess I was, you know, in my clickbaity opinion at the start of the episode saying Mage Knight isn't a strategy game. That's obviously not true. There are, you, you've both demonstrated there are elements of strategy, but I guess what I'm trying to, to, to say is the, the, the thing I love about Mage Knight is the challenge is the reactions. It is how the game you know, like I said, it grabs your strategy and it throws it out of the window and goes, plan again, try again, idiot, keep going. You know, I, I love that. For me, it's what makes the game great. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right to to make the distinction that not being a strategy game, how as you called it, or maybe being a, a game with some random elements, however we want to define it, doesn't make something not a good game. Yeah. And ultimately, uh, with all of the kind of disagreement over the terminology, 
it's why I just go, hey, let's just use the word strategy and tactics interchangeably, like 90% of the non-gamer population does, and use a more <laughs> precise, specialised term. You know what I mean by opportunistic, and I've described what it means. Neither of you are quibbling over the fact that I chose to use the word opportunistic and called it you know, an opportunistic decision game. When, yeah, okay, maybe people aren't going to use that naturally. They're going to say, oh, it's quite tactical or, or, or whatever, or there's short-term decisions or, or something. But I, I just, I feel like using more precise language, the, the two words themselves have become so muddied and there's such a varied path to get into games. And I genuinely do find that it is mostly gamers who think that there's a distinction between strategy and tactics. Like I feel confident in saying, if you ask a random person off the street, what the difference between strategy and tactics is, if they're not into military history or games, they'll probably say they're the same thing. Hmm. Yeah. And the thing is people aren't born gamers. People come and become gamers from different areas so some people come from the very rigid no these are two extremely different things and some people come from the oh they're just the same thing in it kind of school of thought <laughs> and i think ultimately by having the discussions and the disagreements over the terminology we're almost depriving ourselves of more interesting analysis by moving past it and saying, okay, they're not it's not a strategic game, it's not a tactical game, it's an opportunistic decision-making game. And then talking about what that means and how it makes the player feel and why is it a good game because of that and how could it do that better. And I think there's so much more interesting stuff to do if we discard the term strategy and tactics and discard the disagreements that come with okay. them, and start fresh. Absolutely. And I suppose this is my call to action now. This is I've become a content <laughs> yeah, creator. Yeah. This is my call to action. You slam that like button, you sign my online petition <laughs> to ban tactics and strategy from, from game discussion. Yeah, we've discussed it here. We've we've made it. We've laid it all out. That's it. The end of the end of discussion, guys. It's done. That's it. No one needs to talk about this anymore. <laughs> I, although I was the one pushing the hardest for this chat, I wholeheartedly agree. I wholeheartedly yes. agree. Yes, uh, me too. I think I think you're absolutely right, Kendall. I think you know use whatever word feels right for you and and whatever but i think it's a really important point to bring up and i'm really glad you did norm because a lot of the discourse around games does end up going towards it's not a it's not a strategy game because x mm, mm. or it's a rubbish game there's such a value judgment tied up in it yes yeah and 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 you're absolutely right norm to to kind of debunk that and and dismantle it completely and say well you know you could argue any game's not a strategy game if you wanted <laughs> and it's uh mm. yeah exactly. I, I was i was also hoping we could have a look again a bit more at the input randomness we've spoken a lot about output randomness episode this episode i'd love to talk a bit more about mage knight's input randomness as well. i mean mage knight is full of input randomness i mean the mm. the, the seven areas of randomness i highlighted in the setup all of which is, is is input, and you you see all of these areas before making the decision. I think that's one of the one of the things that makes the game as hard as what it is, because you have to constantly you have to constantly replan based on what the, those seven areas are. Not just people say, "Oh, it's your hand of cards," but um, yeah, it's uh, it's not just that, is it? It's the whole thing. You have to you do have to know what's in the unit offer. You do have to know 
what exploration tiles you have and what enemies you've drawn and what mana you've rolled and all of these things you have to, to to bear in mind. And I think it's the input randomness that really, yeah, really lights this game up in 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 incredible in incredible ways. Um, Kendall, where where do you want to start with this? Um, well, I I was most interested, honestly, with the tiles. Um. That's where I, I kind of thought the randomness was the most interesting, especially because you kind of pitched this episode as a the discussion about when people say Mage Knight is too lucky or there's too much random stuff going on in Mage Knight. I often really feel like the main mm. complaint seems to be the tiles yeah, rather than other things. And I kind of I was kind of interested in investigating that. So I actually spent several hours putting a spreadsheet together uh with all of the tile data from the from the game now i don't own shades of tesla but the other two that's okay shades of tesla shades of tesla doesn't add any new exploration tiles I don't excellent so i input onto a spreadsheet the contents of every single one of the tiles there's not actually that many tiles in the game there's uh there's 25 26 tiles if you include the starting tile and I put in every feature, so monasteries, villages, monster dens, and so on, and also the composition of the movement costs of the tiles. And I did. I ran some averages, and uh, it was it was quite interesting actually. There is quite a big fluctuation, in particular, in the one area that I think I perceive to have the most complaints about, which is move cost, and getting screwed by movement costs in. Tiles on your on the tiles, and Scruffy, you even mentioned earlier that you had a story about flipping a tile and you were screwed because there was impassable terrain in front of you, or people go, "Oh, there's a swamp in front of me, I can't move." And I was I was really interested to see that actually several of the tiles don't have much to offer, despite the fact they cost a lot of movement points to get past. Really, which so they. Just- Worst tiles. So it's not. I don't think it's a pure. Uh, it's not a holistic analysis at all. It doesn't take everything into account, of course, because obviously the best tile for you is whatever you need in that specific moment. If you have a handful of wounds mm. and one big move card to be able to get to a magical glade or whatever, then the tile that is like five magical glades or whatever, if there was one, would be the best tile because you need to get rid of those wounds. Whereas, obviously, this is a more generic thing. But what I did is I, I took the average move cost of, of terrain of the, of the terrain in, in each tile. And then I calculated what I call the deck value add per move point. And the deck value add is any location that allows you to recruit units, to fight monsters or otherwise gain fame, or to add cards to your deck. So anything that's going to basically make you better at going back to Tovac's three pockets, anything that's going to put stuff into those three pockets, I considered a deck a deck value add. And uh, if, it, if it was a keep, say, where you fight a monster, get fame, and, uh, no, sorry, a spell tower, a mage tower, where you fight a monster, get fame, and then a card added into your deck, that counts twice. And the fluctuation in some of these tiles was, was massive. It's huge. Some of them are... Half a, a point. I mean, the raw number doesn't really mean much, but the 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 range ranges from tiles with less than one up to tiles with over two, which is essentially every movement point that you have on the tiles with two, 
you're able to reach two opportunities to improve your deck. Whereas the one that's uh, a point five is you need two movement points to reach even one opportunity to improve your deck on that tile, which I found really, really interesting. But that, that, that is really interesting. And one of the things I find interesting about exploration is the kind of choice that goes into where you explore. I think oftentimes where the complaint comes in is that... Um, you know you've been you've been you've been screwed by by pure chant and you you had no choice about it uh but the truth is you have a lot of decisions about where you explore and like for example if you're somewhat experienced and you're on a tile with two lakes you wouldn't explore next to those two lakes if the next tile is a core tile because there's a pretty good chance that it could be the blue city. And I've seen people post all the time going, look at this, I've got a wall of lakes. How did that happen? Were you explored next to two lakes? Like Mm. there was a very real chance that would happen. Mm. You're almost inviting danger upon yourself. Yeah, that's an interesting one because at some point then the courthouse specifically especially and maybe even with experience all of the countryside tiles kind of get logged in your databanks and become more and more predictable as you play and you kind of know what to anticipate and expect it kind of mitigates some of that randomness there doesn't it and i think it goes back to what i was saying right at the beginning of of the episode mage knight has a huge skill ceiling and a big part of that is understanding where the game can mess you up like I don't think that has happened to me for the last maybe 20 plays. And it's not because I've been lucky. It's because I won't explore next to two lakes when the next tile is a quartile, because I understand that there is a, there's a pretty decent chance. There's only four quartiles in the box and two of them have to be a city. There's only four cities. It's It's pretty likely that it could well be the blue city. And if I do that, I'm taking that output randomness into my own hands and I'm kind of throwing myself over to the gods of chaos. And that's fine if you want to do that, but you have to accept that that was your decision. It wasn't luck, if that makes sense. And But I mean, to some extent, it was still luck though, wasn't it? Because yeah, you could still account for that and be like, well, it might be the blue city, but I'm going to roll those dice. And then it is still rolling those dice, is still output randomness and it is still luck. On another day, you might get away with it. I think that's one of my favorite things about the game, though, is that it has those output randomness uh, events, but the game lets you choose when when to have it. It reminds me of Scythe, where in Scythe there is no output randomness, but there is some level of player uncertainty when you battle. So when you battle, there is player uncertainty. You don't know how much power and what attack card your opponent is going to play. But you on your turn choose whether you want to battle or not so you wouldn't ever battle at a time where you knew you couldn't guarantee victory and it's the same with mage knight mage knight does have output randomness but if you choose to interact with it in a risky way then you are doing so and you better be doing so because you find that risk fun because if you're not you're not going to have a nice time but the, the the interesting thing is the game allows you to make those decisions it allows you to roll a dice or or not, or just leave the dice on the table. Don't roll the dice at all, you know? And I think that's lovely. 
Yeah, I can see how it'd be frustrating for someone who hasn't played as much as us, though, and <laughs> doesn't know to anticipate the blue tie. I think Mage Knight's actually really good at, pa- at not pandering to, but easing in newer players. I think it, it has a really, really lovely mix of being accessible while having the knowledge really, really pay off. Because Norm said he's used his knowledge of, of the, the core tiles and, and so on to avoid being trapped. But at the same time, a lot of what Mage Knight does is it limits your options in a way so that you can care about what might come next. But if you don't know what's going to come next because you don't have that level of knowledge yet, you still aren't overwhelmed by the amount of decisions that you have to make. You know, to give a more concrete example, you might be very deliberately controlling the flow of the advanced actions to manipulate what's in the dummy player's deck. And you might be going, I'm going to try and cycle through them slightly faster than normal because there's an advanced action I really want and I hope it comes up. And that's kind of the high knowledge level. And then the low knowledge level is simply, I don't know what any of the advanced actions do, but there's only three in front of me. So when I have to make that decision, it's a very accessible and easy decision. And I think that's a really, really beautiful little balance that that Mage Knight strikes really well in so many ways. I agree. And just returning to input randomness for a second, I'm glad you mentioned the dummy player because I really wanted to talk about that, that it is my favorite moment of input randomness, I think, in the whole game. And I, I love it. I love it in solo play. That At the start of your turn, or just before your turn, or just after, however you want to look at it, the on-beat and off-beat. So during the on-beat and off-beat of your turn, you have the dummy player make a move. And that move is to flip over three cards and then maybe some more cards and set the pace and the tone for your turn. That input randomness that goes right before you act and tells you, okay, here's how fast you need to be thinking about going now. <laughs> it's just wonderful for me. Like the whole start of my get playthrough, I was playing with through actually I said I was playing with Wolfhawk, Wolfhawk, didn't I? I was actually, Wolfhawk was a dummy player in my playthrough. I did a, an analog play after. So in my game, I was playing with Arafia. Wolfhawk was the dummy player. Wolfhawk was playing so so gently throughout the whole start of the game. And uh, then she just suddenly started speeding up. So after the first round, she started speeding up through her deck. And, and that made me have to start rushing my turns in response to that input randomness at the, at the offbeats of my turns. I, I love that in Mage Knight. And, I've, and I think that goes, again, to the heart of where the opportunities are to increase your skill with the game, because as Kendall mentioned, limiting what is available to the dummy player helps control that level of input randomness as well. And I think it hits to the heart of the, the kind of point I was trying to make this episode, which is it is actually manipulating the randomness, which is the areas which you can improve in, in your in your play style. Yeah. And uh, when I first started playing, I... I didn't pay any attention to what went into the dummy players, but now obviously it's a very important part of of, of what I choose from the advanced action and the, and the spell offer as well. And um, yeah, it's just another wonderful example of, yes, and there is that area of randomness and it does affect you. The game gives you a delicious little bit of agency. Every time mm. there is a random event, there is also... If you not not too far, you just you don't have to look too far to also find the agency. Yes, a hundred percent agree. You flip the tile over even, and you get a wall of lakes that might cut off one path to you, but then you don't have only one path open to you. You have multiple paths open to how you're going to react. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And even and even what I was saying about where you explore in the first place. So there's where you explore, then what you've got, and then what you do with that decision afterwards. You don't have to look very far to find the agency. It's, it's great. And the uh, the agency and the multiple paths kind of brings on to actually the very, very first thing I uh, wrote down in my notes for this episode. But I think one thing that is important to remember with Mage Knight and playing it as a solo game is it is a multiplayer game with a solo variant. Like it's designed as a multiplayer game. I don't know that when Vlada was putting the game together that he really knew that it was going to be such a big solo game. And when you look at the scenario list, the solo, it's well supported, right? A lot of the scenarios have a uh, a win condition so you can straight up play them solo. And it, it does kind of hint at that in the, in the scenario book. But a fair majority of them are multiplayer exclusive. And it is supposed, you know, it's not. I'm not saying it's supposed to be a multiplayer game, but it's designed as a multiplayer game with a solo mode. And I think uh, sometimes when people go, "Oh, you know, I've got really unlucky. It's it's not the game's not being fair." Is in solo, you're not working with the same tools as anyone else. You don't have someone else to share in that misfortune. Whereas in a multiplayer game, which is kind of, I think, where a lot of the mechanics were focused on, everyone's working with mostly the same tools right you have a slightly different character but if you have a hard game if you have a tricky map or if you have some really unsynergistic rubbish in the advanced action offer or or, or whatever everyone has to deal with that and there are tools for getting around it and, and making sure other people have to deal with it more whereas in a solo play you don't get that and i think that's when some of the luck can start to feel a bit more unfair. And I was wondering if there's a way to develop some sort of dynamic difficulty scaling module almost for for people who prefer to have the more sort of fair thing, like let's run the stats, you know, this tile is is worse for playthroughs. You know, statistically, people only win 40% of the games where this tile comes out as opposed to 50 with other tiles, let's say. So what it does is it reduces the level of the final city by one if it comes out. Something like that. Have, have the hard tiles, you only, you only shuffle one hard yeah, tile in. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't really want to develop that myself because I, I don't think that's going to be that interesting. <laughs> but I wonder if there's a way to do it. You know, I think because uh, that would help mitigate, I think, some of the the luck in a solo play. So, so just off, off the back of that, I... I love what you're saying there, but I absolutely take it the other way. I personally find that the the luck is less affecting in a solo game than in a competitive multiplayer game. Because in a competitive multiplayer game, you're often going down two completely opposing (laughs) sides of the map almost. So if one of you has a bad game, you already said, you're pulling up all the bad tiles and the other person's getting all the lovely tiles. (laughs) That's how I've um, often experienced a, a competitive game of mage knight go whereas in the solo game it is only you and you're actually selling me on the idea of maybe a cooperative game of mage knight where i've only played that once before and actually had quite a lot of fun with it yeah and i would have to agree with you there scruffy we've played a number of multiplayer two-player games and i would consider in a lot of games i would you know in a lot of games i would say you are a more skilled player than than i am 
But in Mage Knight, I do think we have quite a similar footing. And you can disagree with that if you like, but I think we're, we're quite similarly skilled when it comes to Mage Knight. Totally agree. The thing is, when we've played it, I've had games where you've trounced me, and I've had games where I've trounced you. And I can always narrow it back to a point where something bad happened on your tile and some at the same time that I've managed to speed ahead. Uh, or I've developed my character earlier than you have and it's created a snowball effect. And I don't think that has uh, that is inherently to do with, with the randomness, but it's it's more so how your character is built. Your character in Mage Knight, it you know, one level up makes a huge difference. Whoever gets you know, whoever gets the helping hand first is if you're an experienced player and the tiles flip your way, you're just going to run away. And I think that's one of the reasons why I personally prefer it as a as a solo game or a cooperative game. Yeah, and I think that does come from a lot of the times that you say helping hand, that initial burst of speed, momentum for your mage knight will often come from a fortuitous tile turn or a fortuitous uh, keep or enemy or whatever coming up that comes for you and doesn't come for your other player or just it being a slight edge over your other player. It's very rare that you both start on the same footing and continue on the same footing throughout the whole game and come to the end, you know, having had a, had a similar level of fortune and momentum going in. Um, and it, yeah, that's something that you're right, Norm. It snowballs. My response to that is simply, well you're not doing a good enough job of blocking your opponent from good spots then. But um, <laughs> I feel like uh, I'm not going to convince you of that. I, I no. mean, I, I played I played a game, a Blitz scenario, with a person who shall not be named. And I tried to trace it back to when I started pulling away. And I realised it was when I went first and I got to a village before them. And there was no, nothing else there was nothing they were powerful enough to to kill so i had to go exploring whereas i was able to plunder the village and get a mage tower uh level up and get a spell so i was able to do that in two turns where they spent the first uh two turns exploring but then something more wonderful happened everything they left behind when they explored that they were still too weak to 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 do I had to spend less movement points to get there. <laughs> and I had a more powerful deck <laughs> because I just leveled up and got a spell to then take on the things that they left. <laughs> so so I had an even easier game. And it came down to they picked the wrong tactic on the first turn. Well, yeah, that and the hand they drew wasn't enough to take out that first enemy for them. You know, that's luck, right? They drew They drew an unfortunate hand. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't strong. It wasn't good enough for me either, which is why I had to stop at the village. Um, had they gone first, they would have done the same thing, and I would. The roles would have been reversed, and I think that's that. That all came down to the input randomness of both the hands we drew and the exploration tiles. The mistake they made was they let me go first, and and they paid for it for the rest of the game. But I mean. During the setup, that that might not have been a choice for them, if or, or for you, if they had taken the number one day card, they'd have gone first. No choice for you there, then, is there? Yeah, and I was I was lucky they did they did pick first, and um, uh, and they I think they went for planning, so I I took uh, Man of Steel and 
yeah, went went on my merry way and um, trounced them, if I'm honest. Um, and I've had it happen. I'm not say, I'm not boasting there. It's happened to me a bunch of times for Mage Knight, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's an excellent solo game. Because when you get those moments of this this particular setup is really tricky, it's just a puzzle for me to overcome, and no yes. one else is profiteering off of the back. Yes, of it. couldn't agree more. I will respond. No, it's okay. I will. I will accept that this is a solo gaming podcast. Uh, I understand that I am in the minority <laughs> with believing that Mage Knight is better as a multiplayer game, but you do. You do. You. I don't think I'm going to convince you like I did on the uh, on on the efficacy of ditching strategy and tactics as terms. I think that's the convincing <laughs> I've done today. You've used all your convincing points. I have. Um, I need to rest for yeah. eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I've been talked around as well this episode from where I started. I mean, I still think that in multiplayer games, specifically for Mage Knight, the output randomness is irksome. And I think it's a problem in a lot of multiplayer games. But in solo player games, that output randomness isn't a problem in Mage Knight at all for me. And I do think that I'm perhaps a little bit too quick to say, all output randomness in multiplayer games is bad, but we've already talked about it here today about the certainty of binaries and, and stuff being kind of flawed. And I think that there is a place for it, even in multiplayer games, and that it is more nuanced and subtle than just input good, output bad all the time. You know, hmm. it's, it's baked into so many different systems in games, and you don't even notice it sometimes that it's there. And it can, and, and it can it just lead to the most dramatic and wonderful moments in games, even multiplayer games. Well said. Thank you. Yeah, and I think I think I think Kendall made the really good point about the artifacts, you know. I hadn't even really noticed that it was I mean, obviously it's a random event that happens in the game. You know, you draw two, that's random. But because of the way it's executed, and I think Scruffy you nailed this, because all artifacts are good artifacts. I've never even once thought about it. But yeah, yeah. it is essentially output randomness to an extent you know you make a decision to get an artifact or to try to win an artifact and you get a random one and it's all to do with the execution i think and this is why i think mage knight gets away with it um in this in the way that yes you know it has a reputation for being a thinky game a planny game whether you want to call that strategy or tactics or reactionary or whatever it doesn't really matter to be honest <laughs> sorry you had to listen to us talk about it for me to conclude it doesn't matter <laughs> 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 but um but whatever you want to call it the, uh, the 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 interesting thing is that the the way the randomness is used in, in in Mage Knight is it's coupled every time with agency, and because it's coupled every time with agency, the more you play, the better you get at anticipating, the more your skill will increase, and it's one of the reasons why yes, you can have a game full of randomness, but also it has like I keep saying, a high skill ceiling it is you are able to improve at this game. It's not rejecting the randomness, it's embracing it, getting better at it, understanding where your decisions are. You know, often I see people say, I, I've seen it suggested on the Discord, I can't remember who said it, and uh, forgive me because I can't remember exactly who said it, but I think they said if, if I could make one house rule for Mage Knight, it would be I would get to Mulligan if I draw no movement. And I think you make your decision after you draw your cards. You know, that's the point of the game that you people need to 
improve on. I need need to. I still need to improve on having played it all the, all these times. You need to understand that you're you're not supposed to be making your decisions about your next turn to a complete extent. You're not only you're not supposed to have one thing in mind that you can be screwed over. You're supposed to have multiple contingency plans, as Kendall described it. And I think that's. Yeah, the randomness adds to that level of planning, that level of contingency making, and that's why it's a challenging game and a difficult game. And again, I want to keep playing over and over and over. Yeah, and and, and like you say, it leads to that agency. I think if I were to sum it up in a nutshell, I think it gets away with the randomness because it gives you agency, like you say, and it gives you a reward. It gives you an incentive or a reward. When you draw your hand and there's new movement cards, it feels kind of bad sometimes, but other times it can be like exciting having all those attack cards. When you draw an artifact and you don't know what you're going to get, you do get a choice of something good coming into your deck. Mm. You know, whatever it is, whatever the randomness, when uh, uh, the tiles back to your favorite thing there, Kendall, for randomness, when you flip over that tile, you are presented with the reward of options and agency. It's it's that in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah. Both right there. You flip it over. There's all those lovely, exciting things to go and look at and do. uh, and, And you are allowed to choose whether to do them or whether to just explore another tile. Absolutely. Is there any other areas of randomness in the game? I kind of feel like a... I feel like I, there are lots of other areas of randomness, yes, but I feel like but... I feel like I've kind of made my point. My point yeah. is that the randomness isn't; it doesn't just get away with it. it is the best part, but the best part of the game, you know, it's what makes it interesting. It's what gives it life and soul. And yeah, I just want to kiss it in the face. <laughs> it's those rough edges that we that it needs to be fun. Okay, so. I think that's pretty much all I want to say on the randomness. I think in, in summary, you know, it doesn't just get away with it. The game is the randomness. It is the life and soul of the game. And it's 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 understanding the randomness that will help you get better at the game as well. So I think I think that's pretty much all I want to say in regards to it. Is there I anything else? Add, want... Yeah, I just want to add and I want to kiss it on the face. Mm. I I would also <laughs> like to kiss Mage Knight. <laughs> Is there is there anything else you guys want to want to bring up on the randomness before we go ahead and look at the responses we got from last episode? No, I'm I'm good to move on. It's been a long episode, I... guys. I hope you've enjoyed <laughs> this massive meandering debate. Sorry, Kendall, if you have something. No, you want to I was going to gonna say I feel like if I bring anything more up, it'll add another hour to the runtime. So I'm I thankfully don't have any more points to make. <laughs> I feel like we've covered everything <laughs> and more. Yeah, I think we'll go away from this though and be like, oh, I wish we'd brought. X, Y, and Z up. We'll do another Mage Knight Revisited episode in a year's time. Well, I mean, in terms of randomness, something for the future, this is where you end your scholarly article, right? You, you, We've done the... This is the end of the the the, the paper, right? Uh, what you end with in your conclusion is where you're going to take your research next. And I think uh, something that I'd like to do uh, in the future, and I don't know whether that would be on this podcast with you guys or, or what, but is a bit of a sort of an analysis on deck building games in general and how cycles and the way you draw your cards but you cycle through all your cards would be you know it'd be really interesting just to investigate that Mm, yes we haven't really done a big deep dive into deck building games for sure uh yeah let's move on to the to the questions though shall we uh from last episode before we do that what is the question for this episode norm okay so the question for this episode is what is an example of a time you've encountered randomness in a game and it hasn't sat well with you at all. It's spoiled the game or 
maybe spoiled your turn or just just left you with a sour taste in your mouth. And on the other side of that coin, what's an example of randomness or random mechanic in a game that you thought was really interesting or innovative or just something that brought a lot of joy to the experience, enhanced the story or gave you a lovely crunchy decision to make or whatever it might be? Why do you think one sat well with you and the other didn't? How were they executed? We'd love to know. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so we'll move on to the responses we had from last episode now. Uh, last episode, we asked, what is your favorite board game adaptation of a video game? And we got quite a lot of responses. So the first response here was from Comrade Boris, who says, not necessarily a licensed example, but through the ages, this is Civilization the board game through and through. I have high hopes for Europa Universals, but that has yet to be delivered. An interesting one there, because Civilization has a board game adaptation as well, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Through the Ages, and I know you two have played it too. Yes, love Through the Ages. It really it does capture the uh, 4X-style kind of grand strategy. I've never actually played Civilization, though. So. Well, I think it's a really interesting example, because obviously Civilization was a, was a board game first, and... You know, the Sid Meier's civilization was inspired by the Francis Tresham, you know, 1970s, was it? Or early 80s board game civilization. I didn't know that. So, yeah, it's it's a very interesting one because it's like a, uh, for the ages, it's like a board game inspired by a video game inspired by a board game. It's insane. Is Civilization Inception. <laughs> That's so true. And the digital version I have played it through the ages, so I haven't played the uh, physical version solo. I don't know if it is soloable, but the digital version is absolutely brutal if you play against the hard AI. Uh, that is my experience of that. So if you can trounce that AI, then you're doing something right. Excellent. Now, we also had a response in from Stop Somewhere Eric, who said the Stardew Valley game might be if I could get my hands on it, I love the resource management feel and the art style was top notch from the look of everything. Top ones I've had the chance to isn't a solo game, but I love the two player Bioshock Infinite Stage of Columbia board game as a strategy game that feels like chess with a lot more to it and a push and pull feel to the mechanics that I love. There's a lot to unpack there. Have any of you guys played any of those at all? Well, nobody can get hold of Stardew Valley at the moment. That's only kind of been released in America, and it's very hard to get hold of in the UK. It's a game I've got my heart set on finding because I've seen some playthroughs, and it looks amazing. Uh, I don't know anything about the Bioshock game. No, I wasn't even aware there was a a, a Bioshock game. So some things to add to the list there. Huh? Yeah, exactly. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a pretty difficult time with this, I think, because um, to be even more antagonistic, I don't play video games. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay, what's that? I don't know. <laughs> Bioshock's the underwater one, right? That's right. Uh, not Bioshock Infinite, though, Excellent. which is what that's a, that's a sequel to. Oh, okay. But, yeah. Uh, see, I caught I, my I trousers down already. I have no <laughs> idea what, what, what that is. Well, Stardew Valley looks amazing. It's a game where you kind of raise your little farm and go do mining and stuff and make friends with all the locals. It's a very chill game, very fun, uh, very relaxing. And the yeah, like I said, the board game adaptation does look really good. And it looks like the solo mode for it would be really good as well. Because, you know, the video games are pretty solo experience, despite all their multiplayer things. I've never played it multiplayer. I only play it by myself. So. <laughs> 
Kendall, do you want to take the next one? Next one is from uh, Corroyer. I assume it's French. Sorry if it's not. Um, from what I played on TTS, I love the way Bullet Heart captured the feeling of a shmup, shoot 'em up, while being a fun puzzle. Uh, that's actually a really good point. I had never really considered a bullet hell kind of shoot 'em up board game. I really like Enter the Gungeon. Um, that's a really fun video game. So if it if it captures that sort of feel, I'm all for it. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I, th- I think a lot of those kind of you know, shoot 'em up style board games would fit in well with the episode with the topic we just spoken about because a lot of them have a whole chunk of output randomness. And um, this is something we haven't unpacked uh, in the episode yet, but I think worth saying is sometimes the more output randomness you put in, the less lucky it feels, right? Because, you know, statistically, the more you roll dice, the less it becomes luck and the more it becomes statistic, Mm. a matter of chance, Yeah, uh, right? So... Mm. It's it's kind of interesting that the way the way those um, kind of shoot 'em up games handle output randomness is well. Let's just keep adding more, and eventually it'll balance itself out. <laughs> and yeah. True enough, it, it it does, which is, is is quite interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the game now. I've got no no information about it other than what it looks like visually. The sort of player mats there kind of puts me in mind of Under the Falling Skies. So maybe a, <laughs> maybe you've got a similar sort of thing there where you're trying to dodge the incoming waves of bullets. That would be really fun to try out. The next response we have is from Tigmic, who says, This war of mine is my choice. It's pretty faithful to the theme, story, and even mechanics of the video game. And we covered this war of mine in episode... Four. Thank you, Norm. Episode four of the podcast, really early on, actually. That surprised me. I thought we did it a bit later than that. But it's, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting game for us to play. If you want to find out more about that, check out our episode four. Yeah, this war of mine is an extremely interesting uh board game i've not played the video game but if it you know captures that same feel then uh yeah um i think that's the most important thing about this war of mine how it makes you feel so uh tigmic says that it captures you know even the mechanics of the video game but to me that's almost secondary as long as it delivers on that same feeling because i feel like this war of mine is all a game about impact uh the impact it has on you um i don't know what you guys think of that can confirm it is miserable. Oh, I still haven't <laughs> played it, but from what I can tell, it's almost exactly the same. Yeah. Excellent. We also had a response from Peter Lovelace, who says, Cantaloupe is the perfect adaptation of a point-and-click adventure. So you're going to have to educate me, video game experts. What What is a point-and-click adventure? Okay, so a point-and-click adventure is... Uh, they're kind of usually quite uh, retro, in that they really had a heyday sort of... Uh, I want to say in the 90s. Is that fair, Kendall, would you say? Yeah. Point and uh, 80s, 90s. Yeah. Well, 80s was more text adventure. Yeah. With things like Myst and things uh, that were kind of pioneers for the sort of a graphical, like, oh, you've got this beautiful still image world of... <laughs> and what you do is you, you go around collecting items and trying to use those items to interact with the environment. You try and use the bamboo stick to make the panda move so that you can go through the door and progress in the game. And you're just trying to complete the game, basically, by solving puzzles. They're, yeah, they're very much typically puzzle games where you go and you speak to John the cleaner and you get his broken broomstick and then you use the broken broomstick to mm-hmm. prop open the mouth of a um <laughs> of a of a hippo so you can grab a 
diamond ring from inside its mouth and then you use the diamond ring to propose to someone and it's they they often have quite a silly sort of moon logic chain of events going going in them but um yeah they're 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 quite fun they're quite interesting yeah i can't imagine how that would translate to a board game no well you say that but cooper cooper backs up peter here and says seconded cantaloupe perfectly replicates the mechanisms of a point and click adventure in the vein of the classic LucasArts adventures like Day of the Tentacle. Plus, it has funny dialogues and a great sense of humour. It's pretty hard to pull off being funny in a board game, but Cantaloupe pulls it off. It's a great game. Yeah, the art style looks on point. I'm looking at some images now, but it also looks like a bit of a cryptic puzzle thing going on with just reams of code <laughs> it looks uh looks like a, a fun little experience to explore i'm interested to hear if it's kind of repeatable or if it's a one and done kind of thing like the exit games you know can you replay it uh, and the last one we've got time for today is from anway who says best video game adaptation of course it's guards of atlantis 2 tabletop moba the best board game of all time i love mobas wow. i i have thousands of hours spread across league of legends dota 2 uh dawn gate i've tried loads of loads loads of mobas and i'm yet to see a tabletop game emulate them in a way that i like so i'm gonna have to check guards of atlantis 2 out and of course moba for those who don't play video games it stands for more oranges before apples um, <laughs> absolutely correct <laughs> 100%. Game, game about fruit it's mangoes oranges bananas apples Oh, sorry. You can tell on, I'm a video game novice. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I play as well. I'm a big fan of MOBAs. I play Smite myself, and I've started getting into Heroes of the Storm a little bit recently. But the closest I've come board game-wise was Cloudspire, which you played as well, Norm. has Ooh. kind of a MOBA-esque feel to it, I would say. You send your units to the opposing tower. I don't know. It feels quite mobery to me anyway. I think I'm getting what it feels like when people tune in to hear us talk about solo games and I somehow manage to talk about 18xx instead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now getting how they feel, right, with this video game conversation. But yeah, that, that definitely is one we'll have to try out if it's got a if it's got a solo mode because, like Kendall says, uh, there aren't that many MOBA board games that I know. Scruffy, do you want to do a uh, a video game spin-off show? <laughs> that would be fun for me. I'd I'd love to just sit and chat about video games. I'm equally as passionate about video games as I am about board games. So. Well, this has been a really fun question time for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, 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 that's that's really cool. I'm I'm learning as well. It's uh it's good. It's like, you know, te- teach the idiot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today with uh, such a long episode. If you've bared with us this long, very very impressed with your fortitude, guys, and thanks for sticking with us. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If we could just get that question again, Norm. Yeah, the question is, can you name an example of a a random event or random mechanic in a game that you disliked and a random mechanic or random event in the game that you that you did like? And and what was the reason for for both? If you can only think of one on one side of the coin, feel free to write in anyway. And we, we haven't really said this before, but if you're listening to this after the fact, and you're in fact, even if you listen to this and it's the year 2025. And this is the first time you've heard this question. You've got a great answer for it. We still want to hear your answer. This isn't yes. 
a, a trapped moment in time where you're, you're you've missed your opportunity just jump on the discord it will still be there um just jump on the discord and 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 give us your response on the listener questions the links to that are of course in the description we we still want to know what you have to say so yeah all that's left is to say a massive thank you then to kendall for joining us today thank you so much kendall you did not disappoint as always you've been an absolute delight to talk to thank you for having me i like coming on this show because you're nice to me at the end <laughs> it's like, it was it, it was pleasant talking to you and i'm, I'm thinking well, was it oh, i must be doing something right it was it was fantastic kendall as always um before you go though if you're thinking okay i've got some answers i want to i want to i want to i want to give those answers i want to reach out to always player one how can you do that but you can reach out on the discord as i've already said the links are in the description you can also reach out on Facebook. Um, the again links are in the description. We're on Instagram as at always player one podcast. We're on Reddit as always underscore player underscore one. And if you'd like to support the show, you can also check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash always player one podcast. Any pledge amount you give us will give you access to our behind the scenes show the planning phase and by the way we've got some big things coming up the planning phase is where we talk about what's coming up on the show and sort of decide on air what we're going to be doing and if, if you're not on the planning phase yet you you were missing out now because we've got a lot in the pipeline and it's really exciting but if you can't support us on patreon we do have some other stuff coming up right scruffy we should probably talk about that here i know it's been a long episode but this is pretty important isn't it it's big news yeah so this is this is up now and we'll put links up on the discord when we drop this episode episode and uh, that is the we have a new method to support us now as well as the patreon in, or instead of the patreon if you'd prefer uh, and that is you can buy us a coffee at coffee.com that's ko-fi.com forward slash always player one and you just uh, if you've never interacted with coffee before you do is uh, choose how many coffees to buy me a norm and uh, all the money is goes directly to us with no fees being taken by the platform which is good and we intend to set some goals on there for when we raise certain amounts and we also will that will be the space to watch for a potential merch store in the future when we finally get around to sourcing our merch that will be where we host it yeah we've had a lot of like people reaching out and saying i'd love to support the show financially but i don't like the monthly you know agreement i have to enter a patron is there anything else i can do to support you can i can we buy you games can we can we contribute towards the cost of the upkeep in in, in any kind of one-off manner and this is the good compromise we think um to, to get this coffee uh page set up so the links to that are in the description if you didn't if you didn't catch the address but yeah this is uh, uh another way you can support the show is you can tell someone about us um mm -hmm. when you guys talk about us online or even just by word of mouth it helps the show an unbelievable amount one person talking about us online is way more effective than any kind of promotional post either of us could do so yeah if you don't want to support us on coffee or can't support us on patreon just tell someone to check us out because uh, it goes a long way. Yes. I think that's all we've got time for. Uh, thank you so much for joining us again, Kendall. Thank you so much for listening. And um, if, we, if you're not catching us on the planning phase, then we'll see you in two weeks. Yes, thank you. And thank you again for joining us, Kendall. Thanks so much for listening to Always Player One. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to support the show, don't forget to check out our Patreon page. The links to that are in the description. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Always Player One. Until then, reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or by email to keep the conversation going.